Thank you guys so much for the opportunity to speak with you today. Um, I did not grow up in a church context where this was anything that I could have imagined for my future um, as, as a woman. So I am really grateful and like a little amped um, to be here today. So thank you all. Um, I have never preached at another church, but it's hard for me to imagine that there could be another church that would be more encouraging and wonderful in the run-up to this. You guys have been so generous, and um, I'm truly honored to be here. Um, and we are here today as the followers of a God who loves and uses unlikely amateurs, and that is giving me a great deal of comfort. <laughs> so when Brian asked if I would be willing to speak, I knew exactly what I wanted to talk about, and get ready, because it's super shocking, it's the Bible. Um, specifically, though, I wanted to look at why the Bible looks the way it does. So as Brian mentioned, I'm a literary agent, which means that I work with authors and publishers to bring books to readers. It's a process that gives me an up-and-close and personal look at how stories get made, how narratives get crafted. And I think the reason this topic was so front of mind to me was that the work that I love has at times come into conflict with my understanding of my faith and specifically the way I engaged with the Bible. So I grew up in a place and a time and a context that meant that I believed that in order to be right, which is obviously the true calling of Christianity, I needed to believe that inspiration was a very literal process. And so too was reading the work that that inspiration produced. And wasn't it really incredible that this plain, the Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it, reading resulted in exactly the standards and practices of a suburban church of Christ in the 1990s American Bible Belt. I mean, what could that be but divinity? <laughs> now, I don't want to assign blame. <laughs> this could very much have been a sender error or a receiver error. But my general sense was that inspiration worked somewhere between God driving the writer like a mech pilot in Pacific Rim or a spiritual ventriloquist dummy. But my experience working with writers suggested that if I wanted to keep that sense of how easily directed writers are, I might have to change some other beliefs like free will. So my sense that we all basically had to agree this book was a spiritual dictation of an instruction manual for how to be right got creakier the more time I spent with its contents. Because at work, I was training myself to see voice, structure, style, genre. And you know where else you can see those? All over the contents of the Bible. It's so varied in range and scope. I mean, if you think about it, you've got multiple authors who have really different voices and pet issues that they love to just return to over and again. On first look, it seems some of them might have submitted some unrelated materials to pad out the word count. Relatable, we've all been there. <laughs> some of the books are deliciously heightened conceptual pieces of art. Some of them are history with the pacing of a page turner. Some of them are history with the pacing of history. We got song lyrics, we got prophecy, we got four perspectives on the same story. They tell the same events, but differently. We got letters, yeah, we got genealogy, so much. If you asked for directions to get to my house, and I gave you the story of how I met my husband, that's about how confused I felt trying to read the Bible into a checklist of followable rules. So what do you do with that? Well, for a while, to be honest, I kind of just shrugged and figured, maybe I don't believe that anymore. But the reason that I'm standing here today is not to stop there. I mean, it would be a great way to make sure I don't do this again, but it also wouldn't be true. One of my Bible professors in college loved to say, the Bible was not written to you, but it was written for you. 
Tiny college me just like wrote that down in my notes, kept on trucking with no idea I would still be thinking about it, returning to it decades later in my faith. When we read the Bible, we are reading writings from and to members of an oppressed religious minority. It was written by Jewish believers in a specific community and milieu, or really multiple communities and times, that gave them a shared storytelling vocabulary and their own reader expectations just like we have now. By reader expectations, I'm talking about the sort of narrative contract between the listener and the storyteller. It's that thing in your mind that tells you to expect really different things depending on whether I start a story once upon a time or so three guys walk into a bar. <laughs> Digging into that context helped me start to loosen my grip. And even if it gave me the distressing thought experiment that if Jesus were starting his ministry now, future generations might be fighting over how best to interpret a collection of inspired memes or Instagram poetry. God is not afraid to work in a modern vernacular, even if we now view it through the lens of time. So as I got curious, I wondered what would happen if I gave myself permission to not pretend that there weren't complexities and messiness, but to see the wildness and the twists of the text as intentional, as an invitation to ask, what if being right is not the point at all? I love this story from Genesis 32, 22 through 30, which I think we should have on a slide. Yeah, there we go. That night, Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 sons, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. After he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions. So just for quick context here about why we're getting this like family trip report, this is Jacob returning to face Esau, the brother who he tricked out of his inheritance and his standing. So he is sweating it. This is not going to be easy or fun, and that's why we're getting this intel on like his strategy. So Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, let me go, for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man asked him, what's your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. Jacob said, please tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask my name? Then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, it is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. So this story is an origin story. It is the Hebrew version of Marvel's radioactive spider bite. This identity is so meaningful to the people of Israel that their very name is credited to this process of struggle. So what does this story tell us about them and about God? God welcomes the grapple. God seeks out the wrestling match. He gives a blessing to the underdog who struggles. Origin stories and identities hold a unique power, and this is no exception. It's an expression of a core value that carries through the Jewish faith to today. Our kids were really lucky to go to a Jewish preschool, which was right up here down the street on Glen Oaks, um, and we were so blessed to be welcomed into that faith community, which I can confirm still places a very high value on questioning. There's something particularly just about a place that values questioning running a preschool, because, right, like, no one's better than asking questions than preschoolers. Um, so in our time there, I heard a saying that I just love, and it was usually sort of like delivered with a shrug. Uh, two rabbis, three opinions. And I think that saying nods with beauty and humor to this institutional understanding of Hebrew scripture being built for lifelong debate. As I think about this Genesis account, 
it seems to me that the identity of struggle and engagement that started with Jacob is the heart of why we have before us this messy assemblage of disparate forms, voices, styles, and stories. If you look at the Bible as nothing more than a rule book, there's a lot of it that looks off-topic, confusing, or inessential. But what if it's an invitation to a wrestling match that ends in blessing? An encounter that has the potential to change us, if we can let go of the need to find and follow a hidden set of rules and instead embrace the call to engage in a grapple. Any of you who've ever spent time around a Lego kid or were one yourself, you're gonna get this. And if you're checking off preacher bingo, uh, go ahead and get your card ready because yeah, I'm gonna tell you a story about my kids. <laughs> when our boys were small and just getting into Lego, they were really only interested in building sets. RIP our bank account. But also, I get it, the step-by-step -step instructions are so appealing. You start with this pile of plastic. If you don't skip the steps, my husband's always like, don't skip steps and you do as the book tells you, you come out the other end of it with a pterodactyl that looks exactly like the one on the box. But as you Lego diehards know, you're not really meant to only ever follow the instructions. As you do the sets, you figure out how things go together. You understand the system, how the pieces work, what the process is like, and then you're able to leave behind the instruction booklets and dream up something new. One who is reaching for a spiritual application might say you are ready to participate in creation. I no longer think the goal in Lego or spiritual life is to simply get a perfect pterodactyl. I have come to believe that the mess, the uncertainty, is the point. The mess is the point because we are the mess, and God comes to us where we are. Pete Enns, who's a professor and an author in his book, The Bible Tells Me So, said, the Bible looks the way it does because God lets his children tell the story. The irony is not lost on me that it is so tempting to view the Bible as an instruction manual when so much of the Bible itself is working so hard to do the literal opposite. Jesus over and over when asked a direct question gives us instead of an answer, a story, a narrative, metaphor, similes, figurative expressions that require us as readers or the listener then to make an interpretation. Matthew 13:34, which comes at the end of a long run of Jesus's teachings, it's basically like, greatest hits of the parables, says, all these things Jesus said to the crowd in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. What's the kingdom of heaven? It's a seed. It's a camel passing through a narrow place. It's a pearl. It's a field with an unexpected treasure. It's yeast sifted through flour. The more you press, the more Jesus just turns it back around. I love John 8 for this. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. You don't say. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Time after time, people try to trap Jesus, and he just never takes the bait. And it's funny because how often do we do the same thing? In our desire to turn this complicated, breathing book into a set of Lego instructions, in what ways are we no different from the Pharisees, laying our little traps and expecting different results? 
Honestly, we could probably talk all day about the sheer number of times the Bible tells us about people coming to Jesus looking for simple, neat, and tidy. And he just hands them back, complicated, messy, unexpected, and says, what do you think? It's constant, so much so that it has to be intentional. So check this out from Mark 4, 33 through 34, which is going to sound really familiar to that verse in Matthew from a moment ago. But in this set list, we're coming off the parable of the mustard seed, you know, different venue. Um, With many similar parables, Jesus spoke the word to them as much as they could understand. He did not say anything to them without using a parable. But when he was alone with his own disciples, he explained everything. What a flex. Oh, we know, but you don't. Thanks. Now, in their defense, in the Matthew version of this, we do actually get a little bit of a behind-the-scenes explanation. But I included this place where there's the same ultimate takeaway, but a difference in how it's presented in the narrative on purpose. Because the writers of the gospel are very upfront throughout that they are choosing what goes in. In John 20, this is where we have the resurrection and the aftermath. It's the women at the tomb, the disciples in chaos, the encounter with Thomas. It's a really, like, cram-packed chapter. But then at the end, we get this little bit. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. This book is not a transcript. There is a specific story that we are being invited into. And it's a story shaped by this mission of giving us what we need to believe, to participate in the ongoing, still-living story of God. N.T. Wright said in his book, The New Testament and the People of God, that the New Testament must be read so that the stories and the story, capital S, which it tells, can be heard as stories, not as rambling ways of declaring unstoried ideas. When we ask what the story of God is about, we start by reading the story. And that means letting go of the desire we have for the Bible to be that Lego manual or checklist. But in letting go of that, we open ourselves up to so much more. Embracing the questions, finding the joy in this sprawling, complicated genre mashup of a book allows us to return to it again and again and find new aspects of the kingdom of God in a story that looks the way it does because God let we, the children, tell the story. Our humanity is a delight to our creator parent, not a drawback. And the Bible reflects that. The book's a mess because we're a mess. But God's kingdom is powerful enough to turn our complexities into beautiful narrative. I don't know about you, but the messy parts of being human are not the things I'm eager to embrace or advertise. They're humbling. Eugene Peterson, the pastor and author of the Message version of the Bible, said, we don't become more spiritual by becoming less human. That just isn't the story God invites us to. To complete the great work of salvation, God, in fact, did the exact opposite and became more human. We are a creation built for story. And if we are made in the image of God, I'm willing to entertain that God has a soft spot for story too. It is a privilege and a joy to stand with this community today and join with you as characters in this continually unfolding story. Flawed and imperfect, yes, but most of all, ready and willing to wrestle, argue, and engage deeply with the living, breathing story of God. Thank you, and let's pray. Father, thank you for coming to us in all of our mess and humanity, for your extraordinary, extravagant creativity in finding ways to reach us where we are, to use any means to pursue us and bring us into relationship with you. Thank you for giving us a community to follow you, and thank you for bringing us closer each and every day. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.